Good morning, church. Please, will you open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians? And we're going to read together chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. First Thessalonians 4 from verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Last week, we were speaking about What is the passion and purpose of every genuine Christian living in order to please God? And this goal is to be a a daily, innovative goal. This desire, today I want to show my Father how much I love Him. And Paul calls the church to this more and more, he says. More and more, this is to be your goal. And now Paul applies that goal specifically to the realm of sex. In verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And when it comes to the topic of sex, it seems like we are living in a particularly difficult day as the people of God. The world is really turning the screw and driving an agenda, an ideology The sexual revolution that began in the 60s has all but pervaded every realm of public thinking. And many churches and people who call themselves Christians seem more and more not intent on pleasing God, but more and more intent on pleasing the world. Embracing what the world embraces and calling good what the world calls good. I read an article recently about the growing trend of Christians accepting and um, walking in the lifestyle of polyamory, which is this, is saying, if, if I have my wife's consent and another's consent, I can give my body to any other adult. Or I can seek another parallel, committed relationship to the relationship I have with my spouse. This article referenced a couple a supposed Christian couple who made this announcement to the world over social media. We are embracing a polyamorous lifestyle. And they were cheered on and praised in the comment sections for their bravery and their courage. Polyamory is on the rise in the world in general. But to see it in the church, people using revisionist and Selective readings of the scripture, twisting the words of Christ for the approval of all these things. And I found very interesting as a sign of the times in this article, 
how there were progressives in the church calling out other progressives for being slow to get on board. This pressure was evident in the statement of one uh, progressive church leader, a pastor in the United Church of Christ who affirms, she says, the, the goodness of same-sex marriage, but then nevertheless says, I'm convinced that there's something to the one and one, that marriage is best kept as a covenant of two. I'm still convinced that fidelity means loving the one you're with, body, mind, and spirit. And then, ironically, she laments that she sounds like one of those old-fashioned traditionalists. And so I'm well aware that as I unpack this passage, what Paul says in this passage, what he says about sexual impurity and sexual purity, that I stand, we stand in a difficult and an uncomfortable position in the world. The world's, there go again, those archaic prudes is turning into, we need to shut up these hateful, poisonous bigots. And yet in the fight for sexual purity, we know that we cannot be silent. We cannot keep quiet because God has given sex to us as a, a gift. He is the giver of the gift. And we know that every single command that He's given is not meant to stifle or to suffocate. It's given not for harm, but it's given for our joy and our blessing. And my desire for the church, my desire for my own children is that they would walk in the blessing and the peace and the joy of having fellowship with a good God. And that means a, obedience to His commands in Scripture even when it goes hand in hand with the wrath of an angry world. So we won't give up on talking about sex. We're not giving it up to the world. We believe it is God's good gift to us to be enjoyed within the boundaries that He has prescribed. Now, as I approach a sensitive topic, I know that I have great need. There are very different needs in this room. And I need to talk with sensitivity. I need to talk in a way that this passage would meet many people in their different needs. And that is too big for me. I'm tremendously in need. We are in need of the Holy Spirit to take this passage and apply this word to different points of needs in the room. To meet with those who are hurt and hurting who have experienced the pain and are maybe experiencing now the pain of past sin, maybe living even with the consequences of that sin. The point of this passage is not to cause obsession with past sin. It is not for condemnation. The purpose of this passage is our future walk from now on with Christ. This passage, I hope, will meet the needs of those who are hurting for others, parents who have been praying and praying for children who are caught up in the grips of lust. This passage must meet us as well in our self-righteousness. Those who squirm in their seats when the sinful woman enters the room and falls at the feet of Christ because of what He has done for her. Who turn up their no noses when they should be Rejoicing in the grace of Christ and His embrace of sinners. Those who need to remember how good Christ has been to them. This passage must speak to the stubborn. To those who are living in unrepentant sin. Maybe living with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. 
or saying, I don't see what the big deal about, is about pornography. Those who are not treasuring Christ with the way that they live their lives, this passage must be a warning. And this passage must meet those who are fighting and who are failing and who are afraid that victory, that freedom from sexual Lust and sexual sin is nothing more than a pipe dream for them who perhaps doubt their faith because of that sin. Doubt whether God could possibly love them because of it. Maybe even doubt His existence. They need hope. And so let's pray together now that the Spirit may warn and heal and comfort and encourage and fortify and build His church. Oh, Holy Spirit, God, we pray that you would be here with us. Come, Holy Spirit, and heal. Bring hope to our hearts. Bring a warning for those who need it. We pray that you would build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. I have three headings as we dive into this text. We're going to see the countercultural call to sexual purity, number one. And number two, there's an incentive for sexual purity. And then finally, number three, we're going to talk about the fight for sexual purity. Number one, the countercultural call to sexual purity. Look at verses three to five again with me. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Sometimes I, I worry about the world that my children are growing up in. What are they going to face in the future? Do you worry ever about the, the next generation thinking that the call to follow is particularly unique in our day? Maybe you fear for your children. The book of Ecclesiastes says to us that there's nothing new under the sun. And in actual fact, what we find in our culture today is really that we're just moving closer and closer to the context that Paul was speaking to in 1 Thessalonians. They faced the same kinds of pressures and the temptations that we do, and in fact, they were bombarded with them. The sexual laxity, the anything goes that marks our age marked theirs as well. There were a people, the people in Thessalonica in ancient Greece, who didn't really see fornication as a sin. In fact, the culture didn't actually ex expect much from men in their marriages. Often marriages were, were entered into for expediency's sake. I need a, a, a woman to bear my legitimate heirs. So men would have a wife and then they'd have a mistress as well on the side, somebody for companionship. Emotional, intellectual, other kinds of connections. And then slavery made it very common for these men not only to have a wife and a mistress, but then also to have a concubine for day-to-day -day needs. And on top of all of this, some of the cultic practice, some of the worship of a few deities in that city had shrine prostitutes. And prostitution was just another job like any other. And so... Paul uses two words here in these verses given as a command, and they are no more foreign today than they were when Paul used them in this passage. Abstain, control, he says. Abstain from sexual immorality. Control your own bodies. 
They're countercultural today, and they were countercultural then. They seem prudish, even intolerant in a culture where sexual identity is God. And where real life is me living in freedom of self-expression, freedom to do with my body whatever I want, and the God of life is ignored. Our culture sees the biblical sexual ethic as a, a capricious attempt to stifle freedom. But God's commands are not given to suffocate, they're given to provide real freedom. The message of the world all around us is, do what you want with your body because it belongs to you. The gospel message and the gospel calls us to something else. It says, do what Christ calls you to do with your body because he gave his body for you. You are not your own. Real life is lived in him, in pleasing him. And so verse 7, there's this call. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And that is a rich word, the word call. It is a rich word in the life of the Christian. God's sexual ethic is not just this suggestion. It, it calls to us. It invites our souls to something that is sweeter and richer and more blessed than the cheap thrills in the world. God's call is not just a requirement for a list of things we are to obey. It's disruptive. It's an intervention of our hell-bound wandering. His call is His removal of the blindfold that keeps us from seeing the damning and destroying effects of sin. The removal of the blindfold that, that keeps us from seeing the glory of Christ and that Christ is the treasure above all things. Paul wants to remind them and us that sexual immorality is not just a matter of the flesh. It is about glory. It's about glory because lust is an affront to the Lordship of Christ who says to you and me, you, are to, you were made to see and savor me. It's not just about what you do with your body. It's also about your eyes, about what you take into your heart. In fact, the word sexual immorality in verse 3 is the Greek word porneia. And from that, we literally get the word pornography. It's, it's not narrow, it's broad. It's a junk drawer term that's broad in its usage. Paul is not just saying, look at what the world's doing and you're called to a little moderation in your relation to the ways of the world. It's a call to radical holiness of heart and body and mind. Holiness is the line in the sand that separates the Christian from the way of the world it is now and it always has been. And Maybe you are a young person, an unmarried person, and you're concerned that the call to keeping yourself for marriage is too difficult. It's too taxing. There is a growing movement among young people, even in the church, who are saying, if I keep myself for marriage, the pool of people I have to choose from is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Maybe the call threatens your chances of marriage. Maybe where you sit right now, you fear because you know how easily accessible internet pornography is. You fear that this call is no longer practical. It's too radical. There's no hope in the battle against pornography. 
want you to know that the call, it's not any harder now to follow Christ than it was back then. It's not any more radical now than it was back then. The call has always been the same. It has always been radical. My heart, my mind, my body, my soul, all of me for all of Christ. The call is the same. Our God is the same. And so you don't need to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control, which isn't me controlling myself by myself. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This we have been called. We must begin here by acknowledging this call. And I promise you, whatever the cost of following that call, whatever the cost, the cost of immorality is going to be greater. It'll be greater. Number one, that's the call. Number two, let's see the incentive for sexual purity. If we're going to fight the battle... To remain sexually pure, we need to know why. And this passage tells us why. We saw last week in verses 1 to 3, and this is the foundation. If you missed the sermon, I encourage you to go back and to listen to it, that we are to live a life that is pleasing to God. That is the why. But we need to see something in this section as well, and that's the connection between sex and honor. Sex and honor. In verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Now just so you're aware, this verse is actually difficult to interpret. Literally, Paul says, that, or the language there is, each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. So there are two very possible interpretations here. Firstly, Paul could be referring to the vessel, and he could mean the body, human body. And then when he's, the, the, the word possessed there has the idea of self-control. Don't be possessed by lust, but control your own body. But there are a group of, of scholars who think this, you know, this sounds like what Peter's talking about. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, remember Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So maybe Paul is referring to vessel here as wife. And in this way, Paul is batting for the woman in this culture by saying to the men, stop it. Stop it. Have a wife and give yourself to her only. Either way, Paul is saying that sex is a matter of honor. And that we as Christians are to be noble in the way that we use our bodies, our eyes. Our minds, our hearts. Sexual immorality is dishonoring. It always involves the exploitation of somebody else for sexual gratification. That's why he goes on in verse 6 to say that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And the word wrong there literally means to defraud. To defraud. Sexual immorality in whatever form it takes always involves defrauding someone else and there's always collateral relational damage. Sex is never just about you and me behind a closed door and what we choose to do with our bodies. It's never just about what you do behind closed doors with your body. It always involves defrauding. And with adultery, we understand it. It's quite simple. Adultery, I'm defrauding my own spouse or someone else's spouse. And fornication, they're still defrauding. You're defrauding a future spouse, your own or theirs. You're defrauding someone's father, mother, 
defrauding their parents. And guys, I say guys, I know it's not only a problem for guys, but every time you click on that link for sexual gratification to use the body of that woman made in the image of God, there is someone behind that woman. A father, a mother, a grandparent who is weeping because of how she is choosing to use her body. And you are being complicit in that, even celebrating that. I've mentioned before to you that I have this prayer that I pray over my life. Um, when I think of my children, I pray for three things. When I, I pray for kindness, that I would be kind, and my son Noah, his face comes into mind. When I pray, I pray for patience, and Judah's face comes into mind. And I pray for faithfulness, and when I do, I see the face of my little girl. And I pray that God will keep me faithful, because I do not want to be a weeping dad. How can I pray for her future, that she will be honored, and I will be honored in the the young man she might one day choose to be with. How can I pray for that future if I'm then willing to dishonor another father, dishonor woman with lustful intent? And Paul makes clear the father's heart on dishonorable use of sex. In verse 6 he says, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. That is serious. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, in a world where people every day seem to be getting away with sexual exploitation and abuse, there is one who sees it all. And there are many consequences for sexual sin. Consequences of broken relationships, broken marriages, diseases, financial stresses. I think of the position of past and you, you, we've seen it in the world, the fallout in churches and, and in families, the shipwrecking of ministries because of this thing. And there are spiritual consequences, a callousness in your heart that comes from following this path unrepentantly, a giving of a foothold to Satan in your life. But by far the greatest consequence and unrepentant sexual immorality is that you are choosing to push Christ aside, who is more beautiful than anything in this world, and a greater treasure than anything in this world, for something that is less, infinitely less, gratification that is momentary. And there will be a day where the Lord's vengeance will be known. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 8, Paul says, Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. See, there is fighting against sin and sometimes losing, but repenting. There is that, and then there is not fighting at all. Not losing your life that you can find life in the one who is Lord of life and the great treasure of every soul. And Paul wants to look us in the eyes in this passage. In these final verses, look you in the eyes so that you know that sexual immorality is not just about dishonoring yourself and about dishonoring others. It's dishonoring of God himself. 
Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. To treat sexual impurity lightly as a matter of no account is in fact treating God himself as of no account. So the greatest reason, the greatest reason that we fight this fight for sexual purity is because we do not belong to ourselves. We want to honor our Father. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, Therefore flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This passage gives us a call and an incentive to sexual purity. But one more thing we need to talk about, and that is the fight. The fight for sexual purity. It is right to warn. And this passage is a warning for those who are, are living in sexual immorality with no care, with no battle. But I would fail as your pastor if I did not give to those who desire to be free from besetting sin the hope that is here as well. This passage doesn't only warn, it gives us hope. And that's what I, what I want to leave you with. I say this because there may be some in this room who have a very real fear a fear that you will never be able to overcome. That you have been struggling and struggling and fighting and falling time and time again and you fear, I'm, I'm never going to beat this thing. To you I want to say, if in your heart, together with this strug struggle for sexual purity, if in your heart there is a deeper desire to please God and to walk in sanctification, to embrace Christ as the treasure of your life against the temptations that buffet your soul, if it is your desire to know God and have your mind filled with what is pleasing to Him more than to have it filled with those images that stoke your desire but that you know lead to death, then you are promised here that you have been given everything that you need for victory. Let God's word speak hope into your heart and your soul again. May this truth be driven home for you. There is hope for you in Christ. There is hope for you in Christ. And that in verse 1 is where Paul has located us. You are not in him. You are not a slave to sin. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That is who you are as a child of God. This is the hope in which you stand because you stand in Christ. Matt Smith in his commentary says, Who among us has walked rightly and pleased God without fail? Who among us has abstained from sexual immorality, not only in action but also in thought? Who among us has not fallen into various forms of impurity? Praise God then for the one who is gloriously unlike us. It was indeed fitting, the author of Hebrews observes, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Hebrews 7:26. The moral spotlessness of Jesus, freely imputed through faith to moral wrecks like us, 
is the foundation of a Spirit-empowered, grace-fueled life. There is hope for you in Christ. There is hope for you because you know God. Paul says in verse 5 that that is the difference between the Christian and the world. You don't only know about God. You know God. And there's an infinite world of difference between the two. Child of God, you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. And what that means is that no matter how difficult the battle will be, no matter how hard it gets, you will never stop fighting. You will never lie down and die. You will never accept the bondage of that cruel master lust. You will always be bursting open doors and open windows to let in the light because you know Him and you want to pursue Him. And there is hope because what you know about Him is that He is a patient God. Listen, those who who struggle, who feel like never-ending failures in this. See His patience. In verse 1, I, I just love the way that He's talking to the church in this passage. He says to this church, and He has to correct them on sexual impurity. But He says to them, I know you're living to please God. Do so just, just as you are doing. And then He says, do so more and more. More and more. God knows the church isn't perfect. He knows that there is impurity among us. We all know it. But does our God say to us, every little improvement you make is worthless because of every failure? No, He does not. He says to us, get up. And keep going. Keep aiming to please me more and more. There is hope because He is patient. There is hope for you because we live in the family of God and because we have a Father who is patient, we are a family who is patient. We are a family who is patient. And let me just say, say this to you. There are some things, there are some battles that you cannot fight alone. You cannot fight this alone. If you are desperate and you're fighting sexual temptation, but you're fighting alone in the dark, the only way that you are going to beat it is by dragging out your sin into the light you were made for community. You were made to confess. And confession is vital to this fight. The fight against pornography. You need somebody. You need help. Come to your pastor. Come to a pastor or an elder in the church. Find somebody in your home group and say, I need to confess something to you because I need somebody to walk a road with me. And I need prayer. And I need it every week. Schedule the time. We have resources. Let us help you with strategies and even digital helps to prop you up in this fight. And Hillcrest Baptist Church, I pray that we would grow in this, that we would grow in a culture of openness, a culture of grace. That we would not be satisfied being people with our heads buried in the sand while people in our congregation are struggling against this and they're struggling alone. May we be approachable. Not so shocked. May, may people feel free to confess knowing that it's not going to become a matter of gossip in the church. We need to grow in becoming a healing community family of God who is patient. There is hope in the family of God. 
And there is hope because he has given you everything that you need. In this passage, we know he's given you everything you need. He has given you himself. In verse 8, God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That is not just a warning. It doesn't just underline the seriousness of the call. It must encourage you as well. If you are a Christian, God has given you what you need to flee sexual immorality. He's given you himself. The Holy Spirit is the greatest gift you have ever received. That God, despite who you are, has made his home in you. And that he's not going anywhere. The Spirit who convicts us of sin is also the Spirit who reminds us that we are the children of the Father. That we are forever loved and never to be cast aside. And I want to close with this because I know what even right now Satan might be trying to do in your life. J.R.R. Tolkien said in the, the Hobbit, It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near to him. And even right now, what he wants is for you to be stuck in your past. To be stuck in the past, he wants you more conscious of your sin than you are of God's mercy in Christ. Satan condemns. And there is a world of difference between condemnation and conviction. So don't, don't confuse the voice of Satan with the voice of God. <coughs> Satan wants to go from condemnation to hopelessness and leave you there. The Holy Spirit goes from conviction to Christ. Conviction to gospel life. He convicts that you may turn away from yourself and towards Christ. The enemy says you cannot win. You'll never overcome. God's patience and His love will fade. The Holy Spirit says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God's mercy is greater than all your sin. So have hope today. And believe the gospel. Martin Luther once wrote to a friend who was feeling paralyzed in the feelings of condemnation about sin. And he said this. <coughs> When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I will be sentenced to damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we know, Lord, that you are holy and you are pure. And that the goal of our lives needs to be and ought to be to live to please you. You are worth it. Every act of obedience, every time we fight against temptation, you are more than worth it. And so we ask for your help that we would understand the seriousness of this call. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Father, I pray if there are some in the room who have not given themselves over to Christ, but are giving themselves over to sexual impurity, I pray that you would allow the warning to sink in. And not only that, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would see the glory of God and the face of Christ.
you would change their hearts. God, I pray for those who are struggling and battling. Lord, we thank you for your love that never departs from us. We thank you that, that you know their future and that you love them still. You know everything we've ever done and everything we ever will do and still you love us. That is amazing to us. I pray you will fill our hearts with awe. I pray that you will help them to get up, to find help and to fight. Make your church holy, we pray, that we would be a light, a beacon on a hill. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.